You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. Again, I think that we're proving by and large that across government, uh, we have telework tools in place to make sure that people are able to do their jobs. I think, you know, the challenge for some might be, do we have the right tools in place to always deliver on the mission? You know, in in a lot of instances, we still have uh, some very manual processes. And I think, again, we're recognizing that telework is more than just um, connectivity into systems. It's having... Uh, digitized workflows and, um, you know, digitally transformed processes. So the work really can be done anywhere without a um, degradation in uh, performance or um, uh, degradation in service to, to the people that rely on our agencies. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. The impact of the coronavirus pandemic has no doubt accelerated digital transformation strategies for many organizations all over the world, and government is no exception. Investing in technical innovation to keep up with the changing needs of the constituency and to deliver ever more seamless services has long been on the agenda, but today it's absolutely a priority. And with this challenge, the public sector has increasingly been turning to low-code application development platforms to support the revolution. It's one of the reasons why this market is booming. Gartner recently analyzed this low-code market for the first time, finding demand surged during the pandemic because of a shortage of skilled developers and high demand for business automation. They project worldwide low-code development technologies will total $13.8 billion U.S. dollars in 2021, which is an increase of 22% from 2020. And while low-code application development is not new, a confluence of digital disruptions and an increasingly complex ecosystem have brought it to the surface. Governments are looking for ways to not only rapidly deploy applications, but also to pivot away from the legacy technologies that have had them struggling in the first place. I know at OpenText, we've certainly felt this increase in demand all over the world and have been really focused on developing predefined applications to support that rapid deployment that governments are looking for right now. Another vendor in the space that have been keen to support government is ServiceNow. So I thought it would be great to bring on Jonathan Album, their federal chief technology officer, to have a discussion around the evolution of this technology. In his role as federal CTO, Jonathan works with federal agencies to deliver digital workflows and to create new and great experiences to unlock productivity within the agency. Before he landed at ServiceNow, he held a variety of senior positions in the federal government, including serving as the CIO for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. I'm excited to have this conversation because he can give us a deeper perspective into the minds of what CIOs are feeling right now and how low-code can help them achieve their goals. Jonathan, welcome to the show, buddy. Really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thanks, Brian. It's really great to be here. Really, the pleasure's all mine. I'm always interested to have these conversations with folks that have straddled both the public and private sectors. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background in government and how it's brought you to your current role at ServiceNow? Well, you know, I didn't start my career in government. I actually started my career in management consulting. And, um, you know, through the course of uh, moving around between companies and working on uh, different projects, I, I got exposed to 
the federal government. I worked on a project for the uh, USDA Food and Nutrition Service, building a, a system to support the food stamp program. Program is now known as SNAP, of course. But at the time, um, the project was, uh, we'll call it, we'll say it was challenged. I was a project manager. I came in and, you know, with the uh, with the support of a really great team and, uh, you know, a very uh, good government customer, we were able to turn that project around and uh, we implemented a, a system that's actually still in use today at that agency. Um, but through that process, I got to learn um, about the Food and Nutrition Service and, and the work um, they do. Their mission is to, you know, simply stated to help needy people eat better. And it was a mission that, you know, meant a lot to me. So I was, um, you know, uh, friendly with the chief information officer of that agency. And he uh, suggested that uh, I would be a um, good candidate for a deputy for the deputy CIO position he was posting. I applied for the job and I was uh, successful in, in getting it. So about um, 11 plus years into my uh, career post post college, I, I found myself in this deputy CIO position at the Food and Nutrition Service. And um you know, at first I, I thought I was there to be like, you know, the super consultant, the super project manager and, you know, fix all the problems in the world. And, you know, quite honestly, that uh, that approach wasn't working well with for me or, or the team that I was responsible for. Um, you know, but I had, a, again, good support from uh, from this individual who was the CIO, who's still a friend of mine today. And I had uh, good support from a leadership coach who really helped me think about the difference between, you know, being a, being a consultant and uh, solving problems to, you know, being an organizational leader and um, helping the organization position itself to sol- to be the solver of problems, right? To create the right environment where the problems can be solved. And, you know, that was, um, that was about six months or so into my career in the government where I sort of had that epiphany. And, you know, it really um, helped me become a better leader. It changed the way I, um, you know, was interacting with our team. And I think it changed the way our team interacted with, with the agency. Uh, we had some good success. I, I eventually became the chief information officer for the Food and Nutrition Service. And we built a really strong team. And, you know, at a certain point, um, it, was, it was my time to move on to other opportunities uh, and, and give others in the, in the agency a chance to, to run the IT show. So I, I moved on to the General Services Administration. Um, I uh, initially um, was the deputy chief information officer at the Federal Acquisition Service, and again worked with a really great team. Uh, part of the reason I, I left from Food and Nutrition to, to Federal Acquisition Service was well, the, I, the IT budget was a lot bigger at the time, and I thought, wow, I'm going to learn so much by having this bigger budget and be, you know, a lot more challenging in some ways. And you know, the reality was a lot of what I learned early in my CIO career at at the Food and Nutrition Service, you know, those same lessons applied uh, at federal acquisitions, just the budgets were bigger. You know, you'd have the same kinds of challenges, but, you know, maybe it was a uh, argument over or, you know, the issues around a $500,000 project versus now a $5 million project. And, you know, I, I, I really, um, you know, I already valued, but really saw the value in, in what I learned um, through the first CIO I worked for inside, you know, my first agency. And uh, it was very validating. And, you know, I was able to use all of those experiences as I moved around in GSA a little bit and worked on, uh, you know, major IT consolidation and then led our strategy and planning. Um, But eventually uh, I returned to USDA. I had a, uh, you know, a really unique opportunity to work um, directly for uh, Secretary Vilsack, 
when he was the agriculture secretary under President Obama. And, you know, of course, he is nominated to be the agriculture secretary under President Biden. Um, so I got to know him pretty well and um, worked on a project for him. And uh, I earned his trust and he, he saw my ability to, um, you know, understand and articulate IT issues in a way that really connected with uh, the programs and program officials, I think. And uh, he eventually appointed me to be the department chief information officer. So that uh, role for, for some time and, you know, being the CIO of a department, a large complex federated agency, like a, like a USDA is, you know, a very different experience than being a CIO uh, inside a component in one of the sub agencies. There's uh, of course a lot of similarities, but, you know, very, very different in some, in some ways. Um, you have a lot of responsibility as the department CIO, but you know, most of the resources tend to be in the mission areas so you have to really learn to lead through influence and um, really get to know the different agency missions so you can uh, speak their language and understand their issues. And, you know, I think I had a recognition that um, even though, you know, the department CIO at any of these agencies has uh, certainly a lot of uh, power on paper, you have to be very thoughtful about how you exercise that power. And you have to also, you know, be very, um, you know, thoughtful about how the work you do uh, from an enterprise perspective is supportive of the mission. So, you know, I came to believe that there wasn't a one size fits all uh, solution most of the time in a USDA that we needed a few options or, or approaches to support the uniqueness of some agency missions. And for, for me, that, uh, that I think was a, an important lesson and, and worked very well. And, you know, I've, I've since transitioned out of, of government a few years ago and um, I've worked in uh, different chief technology officer capacities um, you know, at ServiceNow, I'm the chief technology officer for our federal government business. And really, you know, what I do in this job is to translate these things that I learned during my um, career in the government, which span, you know, more than 11 years, to uh, the challenges that ServiceNow customers have. And, you know, again, it's very important that we're able to talk about what we do in a way that it's very clear that we are supporting agency missions and, you know, we're making the government uh, work better for federal employees and those they serve. So I, what I love about your background, it's really a personification of what we've been seeing over the past three or four years within government is the partnership between public and private sector, especially from a, an executive perspective. Um, you, you were in private sector, joined public sector, and then back out in a private sector again. And oftentimes we look at this and say, private sector folks can come into the public sector and teach government a little bit about how to be a little bit more innovative or bring some of that public sector ethic into um, the government world. And the thing that I think it's missed is when you leave public sector, you're bringing with you an understanding of how government operates and you can help drive innovation from the outside as well. Um, and that's that's your role now. You're, you're currently doing that with ServiceNow. So why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the priorities you have at ServiceNow and how you're working with government organizations? Sure. Um, you know, I would just say on the innovation piece, I, I think you're right. There is definitely the sense that in the private sector, uh, we can innovate uh, very quickly and maybe more effectively at times than government. But there is a lot of innovation in government. And there are very smart and very creative people and, you know, key roles. I think there are times where uh, government doesn't always support, you know, the uh, support innovation 
in a way that makes it um, very successful because we, you know, over time we build up this uh, risk aversion. You know, there's uh, there's always a politics to these things that we do and never want to be, you know, quote unquote on the Washington Post or whatever. So sometimes in, in some environments that I, I've seen, there there is a sense that we want to innovate, but we're not setting people up to be successful at it. So the, uh, the, the challenge, you know, and I think in any environment is, in any organizations create the right environment for success to set people up to be successful. So, you know, we just that concept of innovation, there's a lot we can, you know, share from the job that I'm position that I'm in now, or even when I was in government around how to be innovative, but we need leadership to recognize um, the need to create that, you know, very supportive environment. And that is one thing that we absolutely have at service. Now we are innovating very quickly. Um, We are encouraged to, innovate every day. Uh, there's opportunity to, um, you know, to fail. And when I say uh, there's opportunity to fail, that means we can take chances, we can try things. And if they don't work out, we can, we can adjust and learn from that and, and do better. And I think that's a really important component of how we can bring uh, products to market, how we can support our customers, um, how we can tackle really big problems that uh, we have in in our government and in the world at large, um, you can you can see a lot of the the work that we've done over the over this period of COVID from emergency response applications that we created uh, to support agencies in their communications with their employees or uh, be able to track uh, exposure or, or provide incident management. Um, when when COVID hit, to you know uh, capabilities around a safe return to work. Uh, and now we're really focused on how do we support uh, government uh, customers, the federal government, state and local government, and also uh, private entities as we all become focused on vaccine administration and, and management. So those are really big, challenging topics and, you know, really critical for, for our country and, you know, the world at large. And, you know, we're able to implement those kinds of products at ServiceNow very quickly because we have this culture of innovation and we have this culture of um, doing things that will make the world of work work better for people or make the world of work uh, in the federal government work better for federal employees and, and, and those they serve. Again, I think it's it comes from the top of our organization and it's really um, inspiring to work in, an, in, in a company like that. So I, I and you, you spoke to the risk aversion that government tends to have. And I think one of the reasons that happens is they don't have the the budgets that are coming from perhaps shareholders or investors. It's tax, taxpayers' money. And I think they're being good stewards of that. So the risk aversion, I think, is making sure that they're making good use of that money. Um, right. We always want to be good stewards of taxpayer dollars. You're totally right, Brian. And it, you talked about COVID for a second. And I think ServiceNow was, uh, did a really great job of jumping in and kind of supporting government right at the very beginning of everything. I think you guys even offered up um, free applications to support the transition. Um, That's right. But, but what I'd love to understand is when you put your CIO hat on, some of these government leaders, as they were looking to pivot um, during COVID, had to do so and make some knee-jerk reactions. But if you're a CIO at an organization now and you had some time I mean, almost a year now to kind of decompress and analyze the situation they're in, and then they're looking at what's next. What are some of the thoughts that you're think that that you think CIOs are having as they 
try to strategize around the new normal? Well, I think, you know, that that's a really great question. Um, we, we did so much so quickly, you know, in those early days of COVID that I think uh, a lot of organizations are thinking about taking a strategic pause and doing a, something of a retrospective on the changes that were made, how they were implemented, and do these changes support long-term stability? It's easy conceptually, you know, to go out and buy a whole bunch of laptops or software. We could acquire those things very quickly and we gave them to people so they could telework. Um, but all of those assets have to be managed. You know, you just can't bring them in your environment without having some kind of uh, software asset management or hardware asset management kind of capability and making sure that's a, a robust program they can operate in a um, physically disconnected world is is very is very important. We don't want those uh, laptops to walk away. They have to be managed and understood, maintained, and, and kept secure. So on one on one side, you know, congratulations to everybody for getting into this telework mode very quickly. Um, on the other side you know, what are we doing to, to manage the changes and make sure we didn't introduce, um, you know, some unintended risk into the environment? That's one part of it. The other piece is, you know, from a, from a mission side, um, you know, our missions had to operate, have to operate in the government under really any circumstances. So the fact that we all retreated to our home offices, uh, we still have to serve our customers in the government. So in a lot of cases, we you know, took existing applications and we modified them. Uh, we made some adjustments, or we, or there were new le- there was new legislation passed. The CARES Act, uh, you know, created the Payroll Protection Plan uh, program and and other kinds of uh, new requirements for agencies. And these again got implemented, you know, very quickly on you know potentially existing applications that may not have been the right fit for that kind of complex requirement. So again, these things, you know, they worked um, because uh, many many dedicated federal employees and, and, uh, industry, uh, employees that support, you know, these missions, you know, did their best to make sure we could continue to operate. But again, I think it's so important that we go back and we look at the changes we made and, and do some kind of assessment to make sure that these, you know, changes are going to work for us over the long term. And in some cases they may, in other cases, uh, I'm, I'm, I suspect that they, that they won't, or that, you know, there are additional risks that were introduced into the environment based on the way we did our work, you know, that need to be uh, mitigated over time. So I, I suspect a lot of CIOs are are thinking about that. What's the current state of their organization following all the changes and innovations and adjustments they had to make, you know, for this for this period of time? Um, I'm, I, I, I also think that out of this kind of um, set of changes, you get a lot of, uh, you know, epiphanies. And, you know, there, there is, um, I doubt that there is a, uh, agency or a, a leader in that agency, let alone the CIO that recognizes how important it is to deliver employees the right experience, you know, from anywhere. Think about onboarding new employees. Now we've been doing this for, you know, close to a year in a disconnected way. So how do you create the right environment for someone to be successful when they've never met any of their colleagues in person. They don't, you know, they don't begin to know the culture. Um, so we need to be thinking about how do we create uh, great experiences for that new employee so they they stay in their job. And, you know, similarly, you know, from the customer service side, you know, we're serving our customers very differently, as I mentioned before. There's got to be a way to, um, you know, uh, think about 
customer service being improved because of this focus on on digital workflows and, and a digital approach to work? What can we do now to serve our customers that we couldn't before because we hadn't either made the investments or we didn't think that customers would want to receive a service a certain way? But we're but we're seeing that. And then you know we already talked a little bit about you know we have to really be able to manage our our IT environments. You know we need to be able to pivot on a dime. We've learned. Um, you know, that also applies to these mission applications I mentioned. How do we build new things fast? And, you know, going building new things fast, building them securely, building them in a way where we can, where they can be stable and work over a long term, you know, is, I think, a very clear learning uh, for a lot of agencies. And, you know, I think, again, CIOs knew these things. I think this reinforced how important it is to be prepared and positioned to move fast, Um you know, so I, I've had a lot of these kinds of conversations with uh, my colleagues in the government. I'm glad you brought up moving fast. And and one of the things that I think when I think of, of that speed is not just getting things deployed, but it's speed to value. It's how quickly do you have an application in market working on behalf of, of a citizen or on accomplishing your mission, but you're you're getting value back from it. So do you think with the speed at which government has moved, that CIOs are worried about the expectations now from their constituency around keeping up with that same pace because it just isn't the speed that government empirically had moved at. Uh, yeah, again, I think you're totally right. Uh, the world around us, uh, outside of the federal government, is impacting how we think about our our technology at work. Um, whether you're working in federal government, work for a private sector company. Uh, the technology you have at work, the the, the digital experiences you have at work, um, we have an expectation that they are as simple and straightforward as our out of work digital experiences. And you know there are many companies who are leading the way, creating new ways to deliver services and uh, experiences. And we need to be thinking about how we incorporate those into our service delivery inside our our agencies. So I, I think if you think about um, something like vaccine management, which is a huge topic now across, uh, you know, every level of government and, you know, in the private sector. And we look at some of the challenges that we're all reading about and people having, um, you know, really hard time, uh, having a really hard time calling uh, into a place to get an appointment or going online to get an appointment or waiting in line um, because they, they don't have, um, you know, an ability to schedule themselves. We can think about the digital experiences we have in other aspects of our life and make a very clear distinction between how the government is serving me and how, you know, um, a private entity is serving me. And we, we have a, you know, I think a clarion call here to do better and real digital transformation in government for these core processes, these core, these things that we do that are essential to, to everyone. And, you know, the, the, again, just on the vaccine piece, it's the, it's really kind of a, the workflow challenge of our, of our lifetime, the number of processes involved and entities involved um, uh, operating at federal, state and local government and private sector. It's really very complex. And, you know, if you, we, we rush into solutions or we, um, do it half-heartedly or try and manage, you know, this complexity in spreadsheets or emails, you know, we're going to have um, a lot of frustrated 
people in our in our society. So, you know, I'm really an advocate of taking um, the moment, the crisis, the you know the 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 event that's happening, the compelling event, and and using it to drive real change. And I think we think about vaccine administration and management and the need to be able to uh, serve our, uh, you know, our customers of our agencies better and in a way that they expect. This is a great opportunity to change the way we do our work and use this moment as a as an example of how we can provide people digital experiences that matter and make people's lives easier. That begins to change the way people think about their government, I think, and it changes the way uh, they they interact and engage. And, you know, perhaps that, you know, drives, a, you know, higher trust in government over time. It's things like this that may, th- th- these are the moments that matter, in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think CIOs were able to jump on the pandemic as that opportunity to be able to drive the, the digital transformation they've been looking for within their agency for the past couple of years. Um, but you mentioned that CIOs right now are probably taking a step back and now doing an assessment of their enterprise and saying, okay, where are we? Where now do we need to get to be or to be after we have maybe procured certain technologies or we've put different programs into place? How much of a challenge um, do you think it is now for them to take a look at some of that overlap or fragmentation? Um, that's happened from perhaps decentralized procurement and, and where do you think technology can support some of that? Um, I guess centralization into a a platform or something that provides holistic enterprise value versus, uh, sub department by sub department. Um, and I think when you look at it, there's so much cost saving that should, that should happen. But at the same time, the ability to collaborate in the remote world with uh, a strategy around this just seems incredibly large. Yeah, that it, the uh, the challenge we had long before you know COVID, I think, is um, we haven't managed IT always strategically. You know, it's been very organic um, in in many agencies, and you know, sometimes you can trace that back to how the budget is created and how agencies are funded and, you know, where, where, where the money lies. We've had good uh, positive changes, I think with, you know, uh, laws like Vitara and other focus on better IT management, but you're kind of getting at the heart of, of the challenge we have to, is that we have to work backwards from the environment that we have. There is, there's no, um, you know, there's no simple way to un, do everything that we have in an agency from an IT perspective and move to a, um, you know, one system for everything. Uh, we have to recognize that there are, uh, there is data in a lot of our systems. And that data is really important to the way our agencies operate. Um, but these systems of record uh, or legacy systems, you might, you might think of them, you know, they're not always, um, you know, built with the user in mind. They might not be as secure as they need to be. Uh, they might have, uh, they might be on antiquated technologies. And, you know, you could take one track, well, I'm going to replace them all one by one. Or, you know, what I like to think about is having a way to um, bring all that data together on a platform and using that data on that platform to drive uh, outcomes. And that is one of the things that, you know, I'm, I'm very proud to say that we're really very good at, at ServiceNow. We like to think about the ServiceNow platform 
as a platform of platforms. So when you think about that legacy data and you think about the number of systems uh, that you might have to go to to accomplish a task for somebody you're serving, um, ServiceNow offers a way to integrate that data onto the platform and leverage it via our workflows to drive to an outcome and and do it very simply with a modern user interface over a mobile device, um, go, you know, doing it from one place. It's not replacing all the systems in your, in your environment, but it's, it's creating a very streamlined, simple user experience that is more akin to what we're used to outside of our, our work environments. And, you know, I, I look at examples of, uh, large technology companies that have lots of products uh, that I, I might personally be a customer of, but I go into a single kind of interface and I interact with them in a way that is very consistent, um, you know, throughout all those different products. And to me, you know, it, it's one thing. I don't know all of the complexity underneath that, that, that user interface, but I'm pretty confident it's there. We know it's there in our government agencies because of how, you know, they've uh, evolved over time and, and the regulations and, 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 and rules and laws that we, you know, they support the programs they run are, you know, by their nature complex. So there will be complexity, but I think that kind of the magic trick here is to only show to the people that are interacting with the programs, something that is simple, straightforward, streamlined, easy to interact with. And, and those on the back end, uh, those of us who work in technology, who, who run these programs, we can deal with the complexity. We don't need to share that out to the world. Um, that, that's, the, that's, a, that's a challenge. It's very achievable to do that, but that's a challenge I think that we all face. So you're working with a lot of customers right now, too, as they're trying to overcome some of these challenges that you're talking about. Are you seeing any commonalities between customers? Well, one is certainly around data. Um, we, we've had great um, advancement, I think, in this idea of using data as a strategic asset. The, you know, the Trump administration made that, you know, I think, the center point of the federal data strategy. And I really, uh, you know, applaud uh, the achievement of creating the strategy and, and being successful in their, the rollout of the year one action plan. Um, it's great work for the Biden administration to, to build on. And I, I see across agencies uh, chief data officers getting a better handle on the data across the variety of missions and organizations um, that they that they support. I think the challenge, though, once you have all that data together and you can understand it, uh, what it looks like, is being able to make that data actionable. And that is a con- conversation we're having in a lot of places right now. How do I take all this data around me? that I can, I've moved into a, a data lake, say, and I can do things with it. Um, but it's requiring, um, you know, manual effort to take action. And, you know, then there's always the question, by the time I understand what action to take, is it too late? I think part of our opportunity now, and again, seeing this, again, the commonality, we see it with COVID data at certain agencies. Um, we see it with uh, data around the vaccine, certain agencies, is to understand the environment. And then because of how the data looks, automate action around it, you know, kick off a workflow that is um, going to move PPE around or uh, send out automated uh, alerts to people that it might be vaccine eligible uh, or let people know that uh, a mobile vaccine site is being stood up in their, you know, in their locality. And we know we can do this because that's what the data is telling us. And we're not relying on a human to take actions. We are 
automating aspects of these interactions because you know we're relying we trust the data we're relying on it to drive uh, to drive a workflow that's the next step and we're we're um, actively engaged in you know conversations like that whiteboarding out brainstorming out these ideas with different federal leaders yeah and i think we're at a point now whether it's a technology or even even from a government standpoint where when they look at this data, part of the challenge was, okay, we have it, and perhaps we know what that next action needs to be, but they didn't have the infrastructure in place to be able to pivot quickly enough to really take advantage of it. Now, I think some of these low-code, no-code platforms are driving that speed to value for government so they can look at data and they can pivot dramatically faster than they could before. They can deploy an app within days, weeks versus months or a year. Um, and it kind of speaks to the value that DevOps is bringing to government. They're really taking a look at what's been working in the private sector and folding that in and taking a new approach to application development. Can you speak to some of the ways perhaps your customers are leveraging DevOps um, to accomplish some of these? Yeah, I think the 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 idea of having a low-code, no-code platform as part of your application development um approach is is really important for just like you said brian you can you know deploy uh new applications very quickly um, create new workflows when you need them that that again i think was one of these learnings that came out of uh, COVID or was very clearly illustrated by COVID how important it is to be able to do that you know from a devops perspective i mean we're whether we're developing something from scratch or we are you know building on a, a platform like ServiceNow, uh the goal is speed and, you know, when we can have our operations and we can have our developers and we can have our security teams in sync, you know, we're taking a lot of friction out of out of the equation. And, you know, too, I can I can think back too many to too many instances um, in my career where we um, we didn't go as fast as we could have because we were a, a little too focused on, um, you know, our own our own world and the thing we were working on. And we didn't think to share um, this with others in our organizations. When I was a, a doing consulting and working on systems, and I could see this also when I moved in the government in different, you know, positions, we didn't have that right level of communication, uh, you know, or, or the change management process wasn't where it, where it needed to be. And, you know, you don't want that change management process to hold up delivering uh, capabilities or, you know, functionality to to people that need them. Uh, so this idea of being able to, you know, automate aspects of, um, you know, change management or change tracking approvals, those kinds of things, you know, I think make DevOps uh, really effective and they make it, it makes the, uh, makes the outcome or the, uh, if, I, if I could say, it, it makes the uh, reality of DevOps Something that drives value in organ in an organization, and people can see things being done uh, more quickly. They can recognize a change in the way the IT organization provides uh, value. And if we can't show value, then it becomes uh, very difficult to, you know, sort of justify, uh, you know, our, our our roles. And you know, we we don't move from, uh, you know, as CIOs, we don't move from 
being the IT leader to being a leader in an organization and a business leader and being involved in the big challenging, uh, you know, decisions and problems of the day, you know, you get mired in that uh, IT role. So we always have to be able to show value. And, and DevOps is a, is a great way to do that, I think. You can really change the way the organization works and you can change your expectations. Um, but I just add one one. Uh, thought here. I think it's really important as we, you know, think about digital and um, we have, uh, you know, or I think a very important re-emphasis on uh, digital technologies. And you can see a lot of people coming back into the government that served on digital teams. And I think that is is really great. And it's been great to see people that I work with in the past come back into government. Um, I think that we have to find, figure out the right balance between um, utilizing platforms like ServiceNow uh, for low-code, no-code development, and you know, also building custom applications that you know can serve very unique needs. So, when when do you build something custom? When do you you know build on a platform that uh, can get you there, maybe even faster, but maybe with not exactly the same uh, you know customized functionality? It's it's a really important balance, and I think we're at the point now as a federal IT community where we should start having that conversation. Well, I think it gives them the ability to almost control their own destiny. When they have a platform that can really evolve with their mission, I think it makes it um, so important then for the for that organization to be able to evolve that way and they can kind of control it. And DevOps is a foundational layer of it, but um, it definitely speaks to the culture aspect of digital transformation. And in my opinion, technology without a cultural transformation really is a, an equation f- for, for not having success. So if you're a CIO of an organization and you're looking to roll out some of these platforms as well as a new approach to deploying applications, what are you, what are you doing as your next steps to, to make sure from a cultural perspective, this is successful? Well, I, I think you, you hit on it with the culture. Um, the cultural component, because the technology is the easy part, so to speak. Um, it's the change management, it's the culture change that makes or breaks so many different projects that that I've been on and different initiatives that I've been responsible for. So, you know, I think we can never eliminate the uh, human element of our of our interactions, and sometimes uh, we can jump to a technology solution before we have, you know, the, the right mind share inside an organization. So I think we have to be careful that we don't rush. Um, you know, it, it, the cliche is go fast to go, go slow to go fast, right? You know, you don't want to go too fast and have to redo things. I like to think about it as when you go very quickly, you can create some blind spots and those blind spots have a way of coming back and you know, and haunting you. So you do have to build the right momentum and understanding um, about what a project is going to accomplish and and why is there a need for for change. If you can do that, uh, you've won. You, you know, you've won the battle. I think, or you've won a lot of the battle. You still have to implement the technology, but envisioning value and figuring out um, what you're trying to accomplish, whether it's a roadmap, whether it is a uh, you know a uh, you know process flows, whatever is the right kind of thing inside your organization, getting people to agree that we're going to change. I think from as a, from a leader's perspective, 
is the hardest part. And people don't change because you want them to. They change because they want to. And or they see they 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 come along and you know with your change because they see value in it for them or they understand how they fit into it. So very important as a leader to be focused on that on that change process. The technology, you know, will come and we have so many great, you know, tools like ServiceNow that can make the technology in your organization work better and make people's jobs easier. Uh, but but people need to want to change. And I think generally they do, but you know, seeing how they fit into that change is always really, um, you know, I think really very critical. Uh, and that those kinds of things change the culture over time. So, you know, you envision the change, you know, if you really want to drive value and, you know, ultimately I think it does come back to value. And if you want to uh, really manage that process, you know, it's that part of envisioning, uh, you know, what the change is going to be, what's the value going to be, then, you know, you have to do the project and, and implement that change successfully. So, you know, you have to create value. Um, and ideally, you know where you're coming from. So you can, after you finish that project, you can show everybody that, you know, it got better. You can, whether it's metrics or it's even qualitative in some ways, you know, there's a validation of this, this value proposition. And, you know, when you do that, now you have the opportunity to tell that story, um, tell it loudly, tell it proudly and champion that success. And I, I find when, when the teams I'm on can do that, we create a really, you know, a virtuous cycle that, um, that telling of that uh, change management, technology implementation, that value creation story, that's going to yield more opportunities to, to, to digitally transform your organization. So it's really, a, you know, I think a very, it's a great story to, to be able to tell when you do it right. You have success and you change the way people work or you change the way you serve your customers. Um, but, you know, when you skip steps, you know, you, you tend to have, you tend to have problems. If you skip that first step of understanding you know, what the value is going to be, what the change is going to be and getting that buy-in. Um, you know, there's, there's oftentimes that, you know, you end up uh, not as successful as you could have been. I think that's a great point. And I like how you characterize culture really as being that first step. It's not the technology. It's helping people understand the envelopment of the technology and, and how it's going to affect their roles. So I think that's, that's a really great insight. Jonathan, I appreciate the time today. Any final thoughts you want to leave with our audience? Well, I think this is a great time for the federal IT community. We've had this, you know, buildup of uh, IT modernization and digital transformation uh, skills and investments in our agencies. And, you know, we were able to transition to a remote work uh, environment, you know, very quickly. And, you know, we, we didn't miss many beats, if any. In our, in our agency. So I think that shows uh, that we've invested our money well. We've learned as a federal IT community and, you know, we can do important things. I think the big challenges ahead of us are how do we get everybody back into the office safely? Um, implementing the right technologies to support that safe return to work is, is really big. You can see that in the uh, uh, return to work memo that the Biden administration uh, released through OMB very recently. It's a it's a big task, and um, I, I look forward to helping agencies with that. And you know, at the same time, part of that is managing the the distribution and uh, the COVID vaccine. Again, it's a really hard, complicated task. As we talked about, it has the opportunity to really change the way people think about how their their government serves them. If we can. Um, if we can distribute and administer and monitor the vaccine um, in, a, in a fair and equitable way and quickly and with, with 
you know, very good uh, experiences for, for, our, for our citizens. I think, again, we begin to change the way people think about their government. That drives, you know, better trust and engagement. And, you know, I think we play our part in the, in the federal IT community about, you know, improving our nation as a whole that way. Thanks again for putting your your CIO hat on and kind of letting us uh, dive into some of the insights they might be having and helping us understand what some of the challenges some of the customers are that you're working with. I think this is really insightful. Um, really appreciate the time. Uh, thank you, Brian. I really enjoyed our conversation. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Shittestrayb. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.